Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Today's guest has salt water running through his veins. His granddad was the harbour master of Port Kembla, New South Wales. As a young lad, he would tag along with his dad on spearfishing adventures where knowledge was passed down to the next generation. This is where he fell in love with the ocean and decided with all his heart and soul he was going to contribute to help solving some of the mysteries of the ocean. He finished a degree in marine biology at James Cook University in 2017. At the weekends, he would work as a skipper and dive master on a number of recreational vessels. He then went to Western Australia for a season of commercial pearl diving and the Crown of Thorns research on the Great Barrier Reef in the far north Queensland. He returned to his hometown to study eastern rock lobsters as urchin predators at the University of Wollongong in 2019 and is now near the completion of his PhD at the University of Newcastle. Welcome to the show, Jeremy Day. Did I get your last name right? You did, Ian. Uh, Great to talk to you again, mate. The first question is, where did you learn to dive? I started spearfishing and freediving with my dad as a young fella. In terms of scuba diving, my first dive was in... 2014, I believe, off Magnetic Island. Uh, we saw some bleached corals. There was about two meters visibility and, and I thought it was the best experience I, I'd ever had. Oh, wow. What is the most memorable underwater experience that you've ever had? Been a few, but probably just times I spent with my dad, whether that's, you know, we've been up to the Great Detached Reef, some reefs that don't even have names up up near P&G, down at Montague with the seals and beautiful big gropers. Any time I spend with him is probably the best dive for me. Oh, fantastic. I love hearing that. I've got two boys of my own and I sort of can understand where you're coming from. Last week, we had Dr. John Keane from Tasmania on the show telling us about the sea urchin issue down in Tasmania. And I was hoping today that you would give us a New South Wales flavour and tell us the relationship between lobsters, which is most your research, and sea urchin. And just a quick note to our Northern Hemisphere listeners, in Australia we call them crayfish, in the Northern Hemisphere you call them lobsters. They are the same but a little bit different. Would you agree, Jeremy? They're all palinurids, they're all spiny rock lobsters that we get on this part of the coast. But yeah, there's there's definitely some, some key differences between the southern species we get down here and and the more colorful um, tropicals up north. And could you tell us a, a little bit about your research that you, you did on the eastern rock lobsters and the sea urchins? Like came back to Wollongong about 2019, I returned to study uh, where I did the first assessment of the eastern rock lobster as an urchin predator. The reason this came about is it seems like everywhere else in the world or, or most places where you have urchins... It can be a, a, a sign that you've overfished lobsters or, or other predators. They're supposed to keep the urchins down in some places. Whereas in New South Wales, that's not what we've seen. So my, my research question really started in Jervis Bay, where we have these beautiful sanctuary zones that are really well managed, beautiful places to dive. And they're really well stocked with all sorts of predators. You get big lobsters, even some lobsters in berry, like when they have eggs, you know, meaning some really, really big individuals. But for some reason, we get get more urchins in those sanctuaries than we do outside. This sort of suggested that someone should be looking at this and seeing whether the lobsters are eating the urchins. Um, And that's when my research question started. Can you tell us a little bit more of what you found down in Jarvis Bay? My work, my honours, was from Jervis 
Kayama, all through Wollongong, Sydney, um, all the way up to Coffs Harbour, a group of citizen scientists and scientist divers who donate their catches because, you know, as I was going to be going around looking in lobster guts for urchins, I mean, this means killing lobsters. If there's a bunch of keen divers out there anyway who are taking lobsters and those lobsters are only to be taken by hand or by trap and via free diving, no scuba diving and no using implements to collect the lobster. And, you know, typically the fishes only want the tail to take home and eat. The lobster's stomach is in the head, so really I only need the head. So yeah, we've organized this grassroots group of really passionate divers who've been helping me since the past three or four years. Um, And I I went and collected um, lobster samples from all of them, looked through the stomach of a few hundred lobsters. We expected that, you know, lobsters were going to be full of urchin parts because, you know, lobsters love to to knock urchins over. And we expected that larger lobsters would be the ones, you know, full of urchin because better equipped for knocking urchins over and, and they're the ones supposed to be doing it. But that's not what we found. Surprisingly, we found really low instances of urchin predation and importantly less than one percent of the gut contents was Centristephanus rodside that oh wow the black sea urchin we get on this part of the coast so that was really surprising and, and led to a whole new range of questions and testable hypotheses yeah because the thought isn't it that urchins are eaten by lobsters yeah and they are i mean they, they certainly are but our results suggest that if a lobster has a choice it's more likely to go after snails or abalone or mussels or, you know virtually almost seems to be anything except for an urchin oh wow that's been corroborated by our colleagues work um in tasmania they've found uh, a similar result for the southern rock lobster really interesting pieces of the puzzle coming together did you tag any of the lobsters during the research yeah we did a novel tagging study um it's part of my honors but um that hasn't been published um something we'd like we'd really like to revisit the original idea was we wanted to know where lobsters are going because we want to know do they hang out in sanctuary zones? Because potentially, you know, if, they, if they're hanging around, they might be eating urchins. Because the eastern rock lobster, our species, such Mariasis varroa, has the largest known migrations of any lobster. So you can have these awesome sanctuaries, you can look after it, you can have good lobster stocks as we do currently in New South Wales. But seasonally, you know, the lobsters um, may all migrate offshore when we expected them to be in the sanctuary, maybe eating urchins. Wow. <laughs> How big do they grow, the eastern rock? lobsters they're the biggest growing lobster in the world the maximum changes depending on on what you read but yeah they can get up well over you know five six kilos illegal you know oversized lobster when we prohibit taking them above a certain size is 180 millimeters carapace length so those are the really big valuable breeding lobsters many divers are surprised to hear you know they don't breed until about 140 150 plus millimeters and i've heard a story about you catching your first lobster by hand yeah that'd be my pleasure so in in marine science this is what's referred to as a field work fail so i'd come back from north queensland and western australia and i'd have done a bunch of work thought i thought i was pretty knowledgeable and um landed this project working on lobsters i was stoked super happy caught a lot of lobsters up north never really been into them down south so um the only problem was I'd, I'd never caught one before, so I had to figure this out. As you know, lobsters, they molt, and you'll often find the molts sort of on the seafloor. And it's if it's fresh, it, you know, it looks like a lobster. So I saw what I thought was my first lobster, and I got behind the cut in the blind spot and army crawled along the benthos and grabbed it. And, um, yeah, it turns out it was an empty shell. But luckily, I'm the kind of person who, when that sort of thing happens, you can be defeated or you can think, I'm getting closer. 
<laughs> Didn't want anyone to have a GoPro then. No, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, with your research, did you have any lobsters in captivity to do any stomach studies on them? So we had this really surprising result where not only was there very little urchin parts in lobster and almost none belonging to the black spiny urchin, but it was also appeared that small lobsters, exclusively small lobsters, had urchin parts in them and no big lobsters had them. And we tested a wide size range. I was flipping out over it because, you know, I dissected 125 of these things. And, you know, you first start to think about user error. So I was looking on the, the sleeves of my lab coat, looking for urchin spines. I must have stuffed this up somehow. Now, I've dissected 650 donated um, lobsters through um, that citizen science research group. So now we're, we're pretty safe to say, Ian, that the spines aren't um, on, on my lab coat sleeves. So if the lobsters aren't eating sea urchins, what are they eating? To have another another look at, at lobster diets and the importance of urchins, we put them in these underwater mesocosms. Basically, it's a sea cage, right? And I made these out of adapted lobster pots, which I reinforced against octopus attack, because as you'll know, you know, most divers will know that Octopus love to eat lobsters. To cross-check our gut contents, I put lobsters in the mesocosms, offered them different urchins. It lined up with what we found in the gut contents where small lobsters seem to eat urchins more readily, but overall lobsters seem to be completely capable but reluctant urchin predators. When you put them in a cage and don't offer them anything else, they'll smash urchins. This is why the mesocosms are so, so important because typically these experiments um, are done in aquaria where you know seawater is filtered sometimes down to 0.5 microns. Okay. In those settings, you often find that lobsters knock urchins over readily. Whereas in our experiments where, you know, little fish and crabs and all sorts of different things can swim in and out of the units, lobsters get detritus and drift algae subsidy from the seawater. And importantly, the experiments were bricked in in spots where we caught the lobster. The idea is it's, it's as real as you can get to the natural environment um, with the proviso that the lobsters, you know, move is restrained and we've offered it this this sea urchin. So in those settings, when lobsters have other things to eat, you see far reduced rates of urchin predation. And that's the same thing that has been seen in, in some by some great work that's been done in Tasmania recently. Do you study any other organisms' gut contents? I also work on urchin gut contents and the gut contents of other urchin predators like blue gropers, snapper, and those are gained from donations um, as well through the recreational fishing community. Where this is all leading is the gut contents um, inform what's called stable isotope analysis, and that's a non-visual method of looking at predators diet. If there's a timeline, uh, you go gut contents, feeding trials, and then you've got isotopes at the end to see how the current lines of evidence um, stack up, see what kind of story we've got at the end. In all my life of diving, I've only ever seen, apart from Blue Groper, eating urchins, and that was a Port Jackson shark. I'm glad to hear you say that, Ian, because I've, I've observed the same thing. Yeah, so we did a study that was published earlier this year, did a, a tethering experiment where you take urchins and you surgically attach them to you know, heavy objects or chain or, or bricks so they can't move and then you revisit them and, and see you know how quickly they get knocked over. So they're like a convict sea urchin. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, absolutely. 
you revisit them to look at the rates of urchin predation. When we were doing that, we recorded all sorts of things to interact with and eat sea urchins. I was doing a pilot study where I needed to tag urchins and as I put them on the bottom in Jervis Bay, swimming back to shore, day over, going home, PJs just started coming in and smashing them. I almost dived down and stopped them because I was going, no, hang on there for lobsters, man. What are you doing? And uh, I managed to stop. I managed to not confound my own results and um, I just took photos instead. And so, yeah, that was the first observation we know of that happening and in successive experiments that's been observed more and more both with the PJs and the crested horn shark. Really surprising but not entirely unexpected. Wow. When I say that, I mean, we didn't expect PJs to be an urchin predator but really, if you've got the dentition, if you've got the toolkit to do it, it's likely that you eat an urchin. Yeah, that's correct. Getting back to this, because this is fascinating, you know, the lobsters eating the sea urchins. So why did small lobsters have urchins? parts and not the big ones. Our lobsters compete with each other for den space. They compete for food. Larger predators, you know, get the lion's share or they get the better prey, whereas you know, smaller predators often get relegated to the shallows or in lobster dens eaten or kicked out of the den. There's all sorts of really interesting behavioural aspects there that go on that, that I can't really speak to. Overall, the Easterock lobster has a really high metabolism at small sizes. Oh, really? Yeah, and it, and it gets bullied around by, by larger lobsters. It's unsurprising to find that, you know, lobsters that you find crawling around in the shallows, potentially after having been kicked out of a den or just more keen to get a feed into you because you've got that high metabolism, you're more likely to go and take something which a larger lobster might not show as much interest in. And this is where the, the research question gets kind of complicated because it's like, yeah, okay, larger lobsters are certainly better equipped to handle urchins and, and large urchins, but that certainly doesn't mean um, they're going to do it. And, and that's sort of what our research has been suggesting. I see there's a symbiotic relationship between the lobsters and the sea urchins. Has there been much work done in New South Wales about the urchin barrens? This is something that fisheries divers go out and, and survey annually and, and interannually for, for some time now. Overall, you see a 2 to 5% increase in some places on average and a 2 to 5% decrease in others. So in some places you get a perceived increase in barrens. Um, in some places you get a perceived increase uh, in kelp. The amounts they're going up and down by are outside what we would expect based on fisheries data and, and modelling. However, you know, I can see that people get worried when they see habitats change as you do and, and you will see habitats change with climate change. In that 2 to 5% statistic, I like to think about what does 2 to 5% look like? Because it could be the size of a football field. If that was a, a site that I'd been diving every month or whatever for the past few years and I saw a sudden change, I can understand that that would be really alarming and I might want to um, try and do something about it. In that study, has anybody worked out what density the lobsters are in those areas? Well, they move around a lot. That's the thing with the Easter Rock Lobster. With, with the Southern Rock Lobster in Tassie, it stays in one place. You know, it attains a large size and then it's supposed to stay in one place and you can get this localised effect. Whereas for Easter Rock Lobsters, you know, they're inshore and offshore um, annually. So it's more likely you get a pulse event. Um, and when you do get that pulse event of lobsters inshore, 
our results suggest you know, they're probably eating things other than urchins, including urchins, but... That's not their primary diet. Well, yeah, maybe not this control mechanism that we'd all been expecting and that I expected them to be um, when we started on this research question. Why does the eastern rock lobster migrate and the southern does not? The only answer I can give you, because that's its plesiomorphic condition. Okay. Um, because that's what they do. Yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. There was uh, an ecological niche which it, it had greater survival ship if it migrated further um, and then then that was a trait that got selected for. If you know, please let me know. But no, that's the thing that I love about the marine environment. The more we learn, the more questions we have. My New Year's resolution for 2023, uh, Ian, was to stop trying to get in the mind of a lobster. So I, I no longer care where they go, I just care what they do. That's fair enough. And with the sea urchin barrens, where are they? Are they more south or are they more north? New South Wales coastline is naturally, you know, a habitat mosaic of barrens, kelp, conjavoy, fringe, um, you know, all these different sort of habitats. And they all work together to, to make a biodiverse mosaic. Recently, there's been concerns about more urchin barrens developing to the south um, and that's something that's worth investigating and um, something that's being looked into by many different research groups from many different angles and it's something that, that I've done a bit of work on uh, myself. A paper that's currently in review now, I went down to these places, I asked divers who were concerned about barrens, what's the worst nearshore barren that you know of? For Wollongong and stuff, I, I knew what these places were in Sydney, I had an idea but further south, like Bermagui and, and Eden, um, I got some information from from local divers and um, local community groups. So I went to these habitats. I collected urchins from barrens and from kelp habitats, and I looked inside their guts. Um, and surprisingly, the diet was really diverse, both in barrens and kelp habitats, and that was unexpected because we thought that you know, in the barrens, urchins would have this really reduced diet because there's nothing for them to eat. When really, you know, they were eating crustaceans, you name it, urchins were eating it, and that has hasn't been reported in the literature. So, so to your question, where are the barrens? Are, are they increasing? There's community sentiment that they're increasing, but the recent research suggests that where barrens are increasing, how much of that is due to urchin grazing isn't really clear. And our recent results call for this to be, be thought about a little bit deeper because the urchins in many cases eat other things than seaweed. And due to that in the barrens, and we found them to be healthy in, in many cases, including Wow, interesting. Do divers realise there is a problem and are they the ones that actually notify fisheries or yourself or the university about differences in the environment? Uh, There's been a lot of community sentiment around this a lot of passion. Whether it's the role of divers to notify researchers about the problem areas, it's more of an interesting observation, which is really helpful and which researchers appreciate. But in, in terms of barrens, you know, these things have been monitored for decades by fisheries and we've been fishing urchins since the 50s or so. This is something that's been on the radar. I suppose there's just been a lot of media attention for places outside of New South Wales um, and that's caused communities on this part of the coast to sort of look at our own coastline and go, well, hey, why isn't anything being done here? And that's sort of where my work started to to start looking at the fundamental unknowns. Like, for instance, what's the condition of urchins and barrens and what are they eating? Do the predators eat the urchins? So these, these are fundamental questions which, which hadn't been investigated. So that's that's the start of unraveling this thing. Would you say to the general public the message is not to take the problem into your own hands? Yeah, I mean, the, the bag limit for divers in New South Wales is 10 
you, you're certainly not going to hurt the urchin population by by taking you know ten urchins a day. But in terms of going around and smashing them, probably not a great idea. First of all, it's not that effective to control urchins by hand. You need expensive, protracted, long term effort by professional commercial divers wherever possible. And through the years, I've had some really interesting suggestions around community involvement. So I think the best way the community can be involved is by supporting projects like mine. You know, supporting citizen science and, you know, grassroots-based, community-based science and, you know, samples collections and stuff like that. You know, if you go smash an urchin, it's highly possible that you're just releasing tens of thousands of gametes into the water column. And, yeah, there's all sorts of questions around urchins which haven't been asked. Like, for instance, we don't know if smashing them, whether you're a lobster or a human, can actually keep them down in New South Wales. Because they're moving south into Tasmania, is there any other species from up in New South Wales that are moving south as well? Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah, the eastern rock lobsters are migrating south slowly but surely there's a recent paper on that's really good i encourage people to go um, look it up moving south with climate change and recently been found in western australia as well oh wow that is a long way from home yeah but then also in saying that i've got a lobster hole here in wollongong that i often find southern rock lobsters in you know we do get them around here but that's not commonly heard you know while climate change is happening and things are moving south like lobsters and, and like urchins um it's it's not completely linear thing things come north as well as you get that mixing between those two climates and the eac fascinating in all your experiences have you ever come across lobsters and wobby gongs together yes yeah, certainly absolutely and that's one of the first challenges for the for the burgeoning lobster diver i think of it like indiana jones trying to grab the ruby before the temple door closes <laughs> so you've actually stuck your hand in a little crevice with a Bobby Gong shark and a lobster. Yeah, absolutely. Still got both hands. Did one hand. Did one hand for the torch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful! I love that. What are the density of lobsters in New South Wales? Has there been a study in how many there is? Yeah, absolutely. This has been something that's been monitored for decades. The lobster fishery, the commercial fishery, bottomed out really hard in the 1970s, early 80s. Commercial catch went down to like less than 40 ton, I believe. So that was really bad. We've introduced fisheries controls at individual transferable quotas. That number's up now well over 140. And this is something that's monitored. So there's some really great scientists out there like Jeff Liggins and his crew monitor lobster perulis, the larva, as they land on light traps. Because Easter Rock lobsters have a really long pelagic larval duration, that means their larvae can end up basically anywhere. So by putting these light traps along the coast, they can get an estimate of what the larval contribution is for that cycle. So that's one way of monitoring monitoring what the population is doing and the other is you know they get information from yearly catches and gross tonnage and stuff so by all accounts the lobster population is really going through the roof in new south wales and as a testament to that the recreational bag limit has just gone up from two to three so has it really yeah it just shows you how how well the fishery is going and that's what you want to see when you've got a proactive managed fishery in action fantastic that coalescing of high lobster numbers but then also increasing 
increased barrens in sanctuaries versus not sanctuaries, that was where my research question started because those two things didn't add up at first. And does your research show what is the main primary predator of urchins if it's not lobsters? Oh, watch this space. Oh, I wish. <laughs> is that in your next book? Well, you can tell me and, and save me all this trouble, man. In three years now, I have an idea, but that's all coming out of my thesis, which is titled Food Web Dynamics of Urchin Barrens Habitats, Who is in Control? And so that's where, you know, using those gut contents, feeding trials and isotopes between lobsters, snapper, groper and Port Jackson sharks. And yeah, hopefully, maybe I can come talk to you next year or the year after and give you a better answer. Wow. But yeah, so in, in New South Wales, it seems unlike Tasmania, pretty much everything eats urchins, especially if, as we did in the urchin tethering experiments, you remove them from their holes, surgically attach them to something and, and prevent them from going back in the hole. Really stark difference where in Tassie, urchins survive for up to 90 days on the tether with 90% of the predation done by lobsters, whereas New South Wales, we found only 30% of the predation to be attributed to lobsters and and we had you know our urchins get knocked over virtually overnight and and up to two weeks so that wasn't known really definitively until recently you know how different urchin barrens and kelp habitats are in these two different ecosystems well it sounds like we're going to have to talk to you again after your um your papers have been released and everyone's bought the book you flatter me in <laughs> and has there been much work done in new south wales about the barons we're just going to let it go natural i can't speak for that i'm just an ecologist who's interested in how different animals and communities work together and influence each other in terms of management decisions if it was a bushfire i'd say it's at watchanak but we haven't seen any significant um seemingly really important changes over the past few decades it seems to be business as usual based on the contemporary baseline data that we have but you know that's not to say um that you know maybe before uh white people were here before convicts were here and there was a lot more lobsters because you know the traditional owners tell us yarns about the lobsters were so thick and so big that you'd walk across the water on them we've got to consider that there is this other much older history which we don't have data for and um, being that i work on quantitative science I, I can't really comment on those things but they need to be considered i love history and some of the old stories that i've heard is back in the old days that lobsters was actually the poor man's food and they actually fed it to the pigs because there was that many of them. Yeah, while my work you know, suggests that big lobsters might not be that bothered with urchins, it'd be really great to go test oversized lobsters, which are still present um, all over New South Wales. In some places in Coffs Harbour, there's only oversized lobsters. You will not find an undersized lobster in some of these lobster dens. And we still find urchins in those places. So that's another little observation that made me go, hmm, but it could be that there has been some kind of functionality um, lost to the ecosystem by having oversized lobsters coming out of areas. Interesting. I've heard the term, you, you touched on ecology there before. There's the term marine ecology and marine conservation. What's the difference between the two? Good question. Well, I guess I'm all of them. I'm a marine ecologist and a stalwart conservationist. So the ecology is just the science of 
how different animals work together, how ecosystems and animals interact basically to facilitate energy transfer. So through predation, reproducing, living, dying, that's what ecology is. Marine conservation is more geared towards uh, maintaining a desirable ecological state or, you know, restoring some perceived lost ecological state. In many ways, they're the same thing, but with some slight differences and, and I identify as both. Beautiful. And do you use iNaturalist? I do, but in the garden. I'm an avid gardener and permaculturalist, so I, I do use it, but I haven't used it in the ocean yet. How can ordinary people help you with your research? I, I couldn't really ask for much more help from the New South Wales diving, fishing, conservation community. They've already done so much for me, whether it was come stay on my couch or come check out my dive spot and I'll, you know, we can have a look for whatever it is you're looking for or come in, have dinner. When you're on the road, those kind of things are really, really appreciated and um, not something I ever expected or counted on, the kindness of, of this community. And even to the point where, you know, I've had people drive down samples from Coffs Harbour just to get them to me and I never expected that. Really can't say thanks enough. And just for people in the Northern Hemisphere, from Coffs Harbour to Wollongong, would be roughly an eight-hour drive, and that's eight hours back as well. So that's 16-hour drive as, a, as citizen scientists. They're legends. That's all just based off a group of divers and conservationists who are interested in research and genuinely have a fascination for marine ecology. And I'm really happy to say that out of that group of 20 or so divers that we still maintain, four of those guys have since gone on and either completed or are studying marine biology. That was a really cool outcome to get some blue collar divers like myself into marine science because they're really capable and they're great people to have in a team. That's fantastic. They're the silent achievers that we want to take our hat off to and salute. Do you think we need more scientists in the marine environment? Uh, always. Yeah, yeah, o- always. There's um, with, with every new discovery or, or every new um, revelation comes, you know, a whole new set of testable hypotheses and yet there's always a need for for people to get into marine science. But I understand it can be pretty prohibitive. A a lot of the universities now are including things like a skipper's ticket or dive master qualification or or scientific diver qualification as part of the degree. And I'm really happy to see that. That's what needs to happen, you know, for me and and people coming up in my cohort. That was all really something we had to go and do for ourselves and get those qualifications. Um, And yeah, so to that fact, I've always been proud to say, instead of going to graduation, I, I jumped on a prawn trawler for a few months. And it was uh, quite the eye-opening experience. (laughs) Get some practical experience under your belt. And this Friday is the Great Southern Bio Blitz. Will you be taking photos in the garden and posting them? I'll be standing by. I'll I'll be in the field um, for other work this weekend, but I'll be standing by on social media to um, see everyone's posts and um, see all the communication around the event. How important is social media to your research? Well, for me, it's been crucial. You know, I, I was somebody who, on and off again, social media, I had to be convinced by an ex-girlfriend to even get it to begin with. And it's turned into this thing where that's how I've got my samples. That's how I've built this dive research science communication community. And, and what's come out of it is a lot of lobsters got left on the bottom. A lot of snapper um, and a, a lot of unnecessary death is avoided because recreational fishers are out taking these um, animals all the time for their dinner. And yeah, as long as they're amenable to us using it for research, that's awesome. It's it's a happy marriage. Beautiful. Are you optimistic for the future? Um, in regards to... The oceans. Yes, I am optimistic. 
I think that we have less of a say than we think we do. We definitely have a say. We can definitely make positive actions to enact great change. But in terms of the oceans being safe or productive or healthy, really, we've got a human problem. The humans are in in grave, grave, grave danger. Uh, No comment there. What do you think about the 30-30 plan for the oceans? 30% by the year 2030. Yeah, I, I think it's achievable. I don't really understand why it hasn't happened yet. Um, but I understand there's, you know, all sorts of different groups that need to be liaised with over this. And it's difficult because one group or one tribe always seems to think that something's being taken away from them and, and given to the other one. When I say tribe, I refer to like, you know, people love to think I'm a diver, I'm a spear fisherman, I'm a line fisherman, I'm a conservationist. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm all of those things. So I've never really identified with one or the other. I'd like to see some cohesive action um, here between fishers, divers and conservationists. Jeremy Day, legend, silent achiever. Thank you very much for coming on the show. We're going to have you back when your book comes out and everyone's bought it. I appreciate it, Ian. Um, thanks for having me. And just um, I might have to get a rain check for you because you're right in the book. Well, there might be a few spelling mistakes, but that's all right. <laughs> You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.